Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline Travel Trailer, from the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. I'm Sabrina and welcome to my virtual trailer. I am speaking with Iris Gillingham from my home in Liberty, New York in the Catskills. And Iris is in Livingston Manor, New York, also in the Catskills in her town. The Willowemock River is rushing by. And outside my windows, I have the Fisk Brook. For many years now, she has been involved with environmental activism and advocacy, and she has been one of those youth voices who has been really calling out that alarm for us and raising awareness. So welcome to the show, Iris. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm so glad we got to connect virtually. Introduce yourself to our listeners. My name is Iris Fenn Gillingham. I'm 20 years old, and I was born and raised in the Catskill Mountains in upstate New York, where my family has an off-grid farm called Wild Roots Farm. And as a kid, I grew up, uh, you know, we had a community-supported agriculture business in the CSA. So I grew up uh, learning and living with the land. Um, my family has experienced flooding that ended up making us have to stop farming full-time for a living. One of the things that propelled me into activism and caring about some of the issues that are going on in the world was the fact that then my dad was uh, looking at these issues of fracking that were coming into our community where they were wanting to lease land to uh, do hydraulic fracturing. And that was something that as a, both as a farmer and as an you know, environmental advocate and activist, my dad was like, this does not sound right. You know, water is the basis of life and our soil and land is how we grow food and how we make a living. So we should not be contaminating that. And I, grew up on land that had been in my family that uh, I'm the third generation to know the hundred acres that my family lives off of. And that is a really special relationship that I've been able to foster and I'm continuing to develop in getting to know who I am and also where I come from um, and the sustainability of being in one place and knowing where everything on your plate comes from and knowing the land um, and the seasons well enough to notice the changes that are being caused by climate change and the impacts of our um, you know, systems and society that we're living in today. And I'm wondering as well, you described the farm that you grew up on and that you are now the third generation to have that privilege, Wild Roots Farm, being off-grid. So I'm just wondering if you can describe what that means and maybe how your growing up was a little bit different from some of your neighbors. Yes. So I grew up off-grid. So we had solar panels my entire life until I went to college. I had never had a um, light switch that was electric 
uh, connected to the grid. And I was also, I'd always been in a place where I knew what was coming to my table because, I, you know, I'd seen my mom planting it and I'd helped harvest it. And I knew where the water I was drinking came from because we walked to the well to get it when I was younger. And I knew, um, I knew I had a connection to everything around me. And we have three different breeds of sheep. We have Scottish Highland cows. We're, we're a diversified farm. And so we, and we also have a large garden. And so um, that exposure to a different, a reciprocal food ways, a reciprocal lifestyle was very important in me and my childhood and growing up because where we are on the top of the mountain, we have a well that was a dug well, you know, back in the day uh, that my grandmother tasted the water out of and said, this is the water that I want my kids and grandchildren drinking. So when we had people coming into our community saying, we want to frack, that was something that was a red flag because one of the biggest impacts of fracking is the contamination of the water. You know, I have to thank my grandmother for the fact that I have clean drinking water because of where she chose to um, live on top of the mountain. And so if I grew up with the idea of the land as being a friend in the relationship, you know, that we're having this reciprocal uh, yeah. regenerative relationship. And I was eight years old when this was happening. So with fracking and fossil fuel infrastructure, it's been something that has been a big part of my life, very significant impact and hanging over my family for more than half of my life now. And can you describe what it felt like as a little girl and as a young adult that you are now to know how many threats are being faced in the, the environment, in this reciprocal relationship that we certainly rely on and need? I actually think that because of how I was raised, it was something that seemed very natural to me to protect the water and the land because they are part of our livelihood and that relationship um, of connection. So I actually wrote the first speech for the first fracking rally in the state of New York. Uh, my little brother said it at the time, and I don't actually remember what exactly the speech was. I think we wrote something like, we speak for the children all around the world, uh, and we want to have clean drinking water and clean land to play on or something like that. But my dad picked up my brother um, on his shoulders and he said the speech. And so, you know, at as however old I was as a nine-year-old, I felt like it was very important that we protect our communities. And so the first fracking rally in the state of New York had an indigenous elder and a young person calling for them to not frack in our communities. And I think that's a very significant, um, like that I, I think I've carried with me throughout all of my work is the idea that this is about our communities. It's not necessarily just about one person or one place or a certain ecosystem. It is about the idea that all of our communities are interconnected. And when something 
is impacted in a negative way. It has repercussions and impacts on the people, um, the surrounding waterways, on all of these areas that are tightly connected in our communities and in our society. I'm wondering if you can talk about the work that you have done about extreme energy extraction with frontline communities and the organizations that you've worked with in doing this around the country. I had the incredible honor and privilege to travel around uh, Turtle Island or North America and meet with communities that are on the front lines of climate change. So and who are these communities, with, if you could describe some of them for us? Yeah, so these communities are all across the spectrum from, you know, frontline communities that are on the Gulf Coast that are obviously experiencing these giant storms and all of these weather impacts that we see on the news to the places in the Bakken oil field where children's schools are being built right next to hazardous waste dumps and where indigenous communities are experiencing extreme racism and um, right there there's the human rights issue of missing and murdered indigenous women where you know you have a lot of women in the community disappearing and sometimes their bodies are found and sometimes they're not due to the the uh, fossil fuel extraction and also the work that um, the workers that are working in the oil fields, but also just the kind of relationships and treatment um, within our society, the extreme racism. So it's you worked a broad with spectrum of impacts that I've seen, but in many ways they're all connected and all dealing with issues that are extremely close to um, home for me. Yes, and you worked with Zero Hour and Earth Guardians, correct? Yes. So I, as a young person fighting fracking in upstate New York, was always wanting to connect with other young people who were taking action. And I ended up joining the Earth Guardians National Council in, I think, 2014. And I got to work with 15 to 20 young people from across the country and be trained and do trainings for other young people. And, um, and that was an incredible experience around just how do young people use their creativity and arts to inspire change and on a local and national level. And then I helped to launch an organization called Zero Hour in 2018, where we um, did a big day of action in Washington, D.C. and a march and, um, and have been a part of all of these educational campaigns around getting to the roots of climate change and addressing um, what those roots are, which are, you know, white supremacy and patriarchy and capitalism and looking at these issues that are um, having a direct impact on how we respond to the idea of climate change and how communities adapt. And when we say we're wanting to create a just future, what does that mean? It means right. that we have to step out of the box. That yes, we have so, 
So when that is said, a just future, and you just said, so that means stepping out of the box. So stepping out of these structures, right? These frameworks, you mentioned uh, the systemic racism, racial inequities, you mentioned patriarchy and capitalism. So what do you envision? And if we can connect that to the work that you're doing at the moment, you've actually, you are back home because of the pandemic. And I welcome you to share what that means, how COVID has impacted your own life and being in college. But being back home means that you now have become involved with Catskill Mountkeeper, where your father, Wes Gillingham, is the associate director. So you've come back home. You're working on very important projects right now that are connected to what you were just sharing with us. And I'm wondering if you can take us through what do you want to see, you're 20 years old, these systems to look like, this just future, and how this connects to our food systems, to indigenous food sovereignty, and to thinking about things differently. So with the pandemic, uh, as most college students, I was sent home, and I was actually supposed to be on an internship in Bellingham working on helping to organize the next extreme, the 10th extreme energy extraction summit um, on the Lummi reservation. And I came home and uh, I started working for Mountain Keeper. I I had been somewhat resistant to working for, you know, like my dad, the organization that my dad helped found. (laughs) Um, But I had come with all of these skills and experiences as a young person working for other organizations. So I started working for them. And one of the big things that happened when the pandemic hit was our food system absolutely fell apart. And everyone saw that Mm -hmm. from grocery store shelves being empty to the amount of COVID cases showing up in meatpacking plants and And then I think people started to actually outsource and reach out to their local farmers and say, hey, can I buy food from you? Um, Because there was this issue and people were paying more attention to, um, they were at home, they could, you know, make sourdough bread or um, look into what they were eating. So I ended up organizing some webinars and getting involved in some of the food systems and agriculture work that Mountain Keeper is involved with. And they run a farmer's market in Liberty and they're involved in soil health policy and all of this incredible um, agricultural work. And one of the things that has been really important for me to recognize, and I think it's really important for people to realize is that climate change, it's not just data. When we think of climate change, a lot of people think of data and statistics in the IPCC reports. Mm -hmm. But in reality, it is something that is front and center for communities dealing with erosion, flooding, droughts, um, you know, the loss of foodways that indigenous people are experiencing with changing environment where someplace for generations that they've been harvesting ethically and sustainably it's disappearing and 
in farming communities, we have been seeing for last several decades policies going in the direction of bigger and bigger agriculture, which is feeding the climate crisis and not healthy for our soils, for our environment, for our water. Because it, on such a large scale, you have these industrial farms that are having a negative impact and these small farmers who can barely meet their bottom line and are in debt and extreme debt but because they're dealing with um, flooding or weather patterns. For example, if you have a um, hard season of growing, an industrial farm is much easier going to be able to bounce back from that, but a small farmer who is already in debt, they're not going to be able to make it all the time. And so climate change has an extreme impact on small farms, and small farms are in some ways the answer to adapting and combating the right. climate crisis. What you're also bringing up, because of this erasure, this discarding of indigenous knowledge and actual sovereignty and control is also very deeply connected to these systems that these industrial farms are operating from. So what you're bringing up, I mean, you're addressing localism, also this idea of sovereignty, and you mentioned indigenous sovereignty, I think it's important to recognize how that needs to be such a priority for so many reasons. And I know that you do work with this and even are interested in shifting the language around how we even discuss and frame ideas around food systems, right? Yes. I am not an indigenous person, so you know I can only speak to this topic as much as a white um, young person learning about it can, but I think that it's really important that we look at history and acknowledge that land has been taken and agricultural land has been taken from um, indigenous people. And I, I also want to include black farmers in that yes. because the majority of farmers today are white and one of the really important things to recognize is that the idea of um, working with the land is something that has been held by communities of color for generations. So our ways of farming are not sustainable and they're very extractive. Mm -hmm. Yet what we're going to have to learn with adapting to the climate crisis is that we need to be learning from indigenous and black communities that have been working with the land for generations and have some of that knowledge and have been working hard and tirelessly despite all of that they've been put through by our government, by our society. They've been holding on to some of that knowledge and are working to reconnect with some of that knowledge. I think you're describing too is that the pandemic has made this knowledge, this information, really a priority. I think everything that's been going on yeah. in the country that we've seen with the actions and people starting to listen to voices of these communities that are most impacted by these issues, uh, listening to Black people and their, you know, 
that what they're saying about how they're treated in this country, that is also a very important aspect for us to realize in when we're talking about agriculture and farming and looking at with everything that has been going on in this country, especially with the pandemic, we must realize that if we want to move forward, it's going to have to be different than the way it was. That the idea that people talk about of, I can't wait till it goes back to normal. We do not want to go back to normal because that was a time of normalized injustice. Exactly. And that is something that is so important for us to realize as a society, even though it is really hard to swallow as a white person, we must recognize that we cannot go back to normal because normal was something that we normalized. We normalized a really unhealthy society that ignored the fact that there was extreme racism and extreme violence throughout our history. And with a just transition, and when we talk about climate change and creating green jobs and renewable jobs and looking at moving away from fossil fuels, these are all pieces that are extremely important for everyone to be a part of and at the table for these conversations. Because if we don't share the vision with everyone, then when we, if we, and we focus just on the goal, we might reach that goal, but we'll look around and realize that we left a bunch of people behind. And the leaders of getting us through the process of creating safer, healthier, more sustainable communities, those leaders are in the Black and Indigenous communities already. And they have the knowledge that a lot of white people, organizations, and communities have to listen to. And that's something that I think is really important for everyone to be aware that we give space to young people, to elders, to these communities that oftentimes have been left out of conversations where the conversations have a lot to do with their future. I mean, as a young person, I've experienced this all the time. (laughs) I'm sure. Well, thank you for for sharing this information and also for acknowledging that what you want and it is also what I want is not to go back to a so-called normal, but as you stated so accurately, the reason we can't do that is that would be going back to a normalized injustice. Uh, and so you, as a young person, as an environmental justice activist, you are looking forward to a new way of doing things. And I'm just wondering, before we conclude our conversation, what, do, what message do you have for us. It could be for the elders, the older people, it could be for the youth, but what, what do you want to see? What, what do you want to send us out with before we conclude? I think that something we all can do is to work to become more present and conscious with where we are where our community is and develop the roots and the relationships within our communities 
that are going to be vital when we talk about adaptation and creating resiliency in these difficult times. These, I want to say difficult and incredible times because this is an amazing opportunity that our society and especially young people in our society have been given to really create the change that we've been wanting to see for a long time that, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of the teenagers before us and the teenagers before them and, and, and this work that has been done by um, communities for generations. So I think it's very important that we recognize that and we also are able to move forward in a way that um, rebuilds outside of the foundation that was there before because we can easily put up the same buildings that fell down um, and were cracking and we're not very stable but how do we actually plant a garden instead you know like just playing with what does that look like in our communities um, and some of that is reconnecting to um, more regional and localized projects and food practices and reciprocal food ways that are in connection with each other, in connection with this reciprocal relationship with our environment. Um, and Mountain Keeper is doing a lot of projects that are working to make a, here in the Catskills our communities stronger. And I think that is one of the biggest things is right now is a time of creating the strength that we will need in our communities to keep this work going and to be sustainable in creating change because if we burn out now then there's you know that's not going to be good for anyone so it's just how do we take care of each other how do we support each other how do we support change in the long term thank you so much iris i have to say oh i feel such hopefulness and relief and i'm quite inspired by your vision and knowing that you are 20 and uh, that gives me um, just a, a real uh, feeling of myself even being more determined to take your advice. So thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. And for anyone who is listening, I hope they will uh, join Catsco Mountain Keepers email list and follow us on social media and follow other organizations and groups that are doing really important work um, around the country. Absolutely. So I want to thank you for that. I've been speaking with Iris Fenn Gillingham, who is back home in the Sullivan County Catskills because of the pandemic and has been working with Catskill Mountain Keeper locally, which is the area where she was born and raised and is an environmental activist and has been sharing her knowledge and her vision for our future. So thank you again, Iris, really such a pleasure. Thank you. To find out more about Catskill Mountain Keeper, please visit their website at catskillmountainkeeper.org. From the kitchen table out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artell. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artell's Trailer Talk. 
The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artel. For more information, please visit trailertalk.net. Special thanks to WJFF Radio Catskill and the numerous people who have donated their time, resources, and conversations to make Trailer Talk possible. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artel. Safe travels.